Our scripture reading today comes from James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, before we get started, I want to give my welcome to Marvin. It is such an honor to have you here and to partner with the Hope Center. So, uh, yep, we love you guys. All right, when is the last time you really sat down and thought, what do I want? Not like, what do I want to, what do I want to eat or what do I want to watch, but what do I, what do I want in life? Like really take an hour and, you, and sat down and thought, what is it that my thoughts, right, my daydreams, my behavior, what does it show me that I actually want with my life? Uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson was with us last week, and this was one of the more important questions that he asked us as a staff as we had time with him. And it's one of the guiding questions of his newest book uh, as well. And it's, it's a question I don't often acknowledge uh, how important it is. And for a long, long time, right, there's ancient wisdom about the importance of examining what we want, what we desire, the power and the danger presented by our desires. And this, James is, is no different. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he's a, a pastor and a leader in the first century church in Jerusalem. And he's writing this letter to a congregation. And part of what he talks about is what we want. Okay, this whole section here in chapter 4 is a warning. I don't know if you picked up on it, but it's, it's not exactly an upper of a text. It's a little bit of a downer. It's a warning. It's a warning about the consequences of wanting the wrong things, the consequences to our faith and obedience to Jesus, and uh, the consequences to our relationships with one another, our community, our family, our church family. Uh, and James's answer about what real faith wants is really simple, okay? Real faith wants what God wants. Easy to say. It's really hard to live. And so let's take a look. If you have your Bible, turn to James. Uh, use your table of contents if you have to. We're going to be in chapter 4. Let's take a look. This is, James, this is how the warning begins. This is verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So this Christian community that James is writing to, there's, there's a lot to admire about them. We've, we've mentioned this almost every week. 
But this is a group of people who left behind homes and families and friends and jobs because of persecution, because these were our Jewish Christians who early on gave their faith to Jesus and were accused of blasphemy for doing so. And they've left everything behind and they've uh, come together uh, as a church family. It's a lot, okay? There's a lot on their plate. There's a lot. And James loves these people. You can't miss it. He, he, he keeps calling them brothers, which today we would translate brothers and sisters. You're, he's saying, you're family to me. Sometimes he'll even say, beloved brothers, beloved family. But right here, his tone begins to change. He gets very critical. He gets very serious. And verse 1 gives you a hint as to why there's bitter infighting happening between these brothers and sisters. We don't really know what it's about, but earlier in chapter 3, James says that there's jealousy, there's selfish ambition is the language James uses, and it's, it's straight from Satan. He says, how you guys are treating each other is absolutely demonic. That's pretty serious to tell a follower of Jesus that what they're doing is demonic. That's a big deal. And he even goes so far as to say that their act of infighting is, an, is, is murder. This is verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, some scholars, and I, I don't think they're right, but I know where they're coming from. Some scholars, that language is so strong. There are some scholars who think James is literally telling this church to stop hurting one another physically. But that's how, uh, that's how deep this conflict goes. I don't think that's what's happening James, like any rabbi or pastor, he can use hyperbole to his advantage, uh, if you haven't noticed that before. Uh, but James is he's very, he's, he's very serious, this conflict. It's demonic and deadly. It's killing their witness as believers, and it's killing their community and their support for one another. Why? Why is this happening? Okay? James says your, your passions, your desires, what you want— is at war within you. A better translation there is among you, between you. It's not this internal conflict, it's this community conflict. What y'all want is in conflict with each other. You want something and to get it, you're willing to fight and step over one another. James is warning them and us that if, what, if we want our way, we get war. If what we want the most in life is to get our way, what we'll get in return is war and conflict. We don't know what these early Christians are fighting about. You know, maybe it was about the role of the Old Testament in their, in their new faith in Jesus. If you've read the New Testament, you know that probably the first big controversy of the early church was, man, what do we do with all these laws from the Old Testament that define the Jewish people now that all these Gentiles are joining? Maybe it was about that. Maybe it was about politics, Okay. How to respond to Rome. Remember, these are Jewish Christians who lived in Jerusalem under Roman occupation. And many of their contemporaries and perhaps even some of the converts uh, were coming out of situations where they advocated for violence and rebellion against Rome as an act of obedience to God. Right? To get Zion back to God. Okay, that's a big deal. If you're disagreeing about that, we don't know. And frankly, James doesn't really need us to know. His concern is not that fights Uh, that there's disagreement, because none of that is the problem. There's always disagreement between people. Ask anybody who lives with somebody else. Say, do you guys ever disagree? Well, yeah, of course you do. Disagreement happens in community, okay? But when what we want most is to get our way, selfish ambition, as James calls it, when we practice that, when our own passions 
must be fulfilled at any expense, that is a problem. Okay, James is not saying that you guys have quarrels among you because you disagree. No. It's because your passions, your, your hedone is the Greek there. It's where we get our word hedonism in English. It says your, your, your passions are at war among you. And this word passions, like in English, when we hear that, we, we think kind of like sensuality, right? And that James means more than that. This isn't just a pursuit of physical pleasure. It, um, it's, it's an overall selfish attitude that can lead to boastfulness or rivalry or jealousy, outright hatred of one another when someone gets in our way or stops us from what we want. And this stuff can start really small, but it always ends in war. This is James's point. If, if what you want more than anything, day in and day out, is your own way, the only thing you're going to get is war. Because peace, like God's peace, God's shalom that he wants for his people, is only possible, is only possible when what you want is not the most important thing in your life. This is especially true of the Christian community. You know, when Jesus talks about his people, when, when he talks about us, when he prays for us, I want you to notice what he connects our witness to the most. This is in John 17. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples in the room when he prays, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a reason James is so serious here. He knows that Jesus linked our unity, our ability to have healthy conflict, our ability to love one another, even when it's difficult. Jesus linked that to the world's belief in who he is. Our ability to not put our wants and, need and desires above everyone else is also our ability to witness to the world. When we fight and devour one another, no one will believe Jesus is the Son of God. They go together. Jesus explicitly prayed that we would not do this, this kind of conflict, which is why James is so serious. And it's so bad that James points out, he says, even your prayer lives are filled with requests that have nothing to do with what God wants and nothing to do with what your neighbor might need, but only about you. <laughs> he says this in verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Even, he says, even your, your asking of God, even your prayer life with God has become a place of selfish ambition. It's like, God, give me what I want. Amen. That's straight from hell. And think about it. That makes sense. Because hell is the place defined by wanting to get your way at any expense. That is the key characteristic of hell. Hell is the place where everyone, down to a man, thinks that what they want and what they desire is the most important thing in the universe. And that no one can get in their way. No one should stop them. And for some, that looks like every conceivable worldly pleasure, right? That may be even where your mind is going. Someone who just wants and wants and wants and wants and wants. But for most of us, I don't think it looks like that. I think it's pettier than that. 
actually. I think it looks like wanting our schedule, wanting our preferences, wanting our comforts, wanting our little insignificant expectations met every day. It's never allowing others to disagree with us or to challenge us or to correct us without punishing them in return. If we live for ourselves, even in these little small ways, and you stretch that posture in life out over eternity, you get hell. Hell is full of that. Are we full of that? Okay, this is serious. I, I, as I've reflected on this, I'm realizing that every, every time I am inconvenienced or I'm disappointed or I'm disagreed with, okay, especially in my church family, that is a moment I can either say no, what I think and what I want and what I prefer is more important than you, or I can want something bigger and better. I can want what God wants. I can want what I want, or I can want what God wants. And hidden in that moment, which what happens, what, a hundred times a day? Hidden in every one of those moments is the power of hell or the power of heaven. This is the decision James puts before us, okay? If what we want most in life is our own way, even if you'd never say that out loud, you'd never admit that to anyone, all you get is war. But that's not the only temptation that James is concerned about here. So look at verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. I don't know how long you have to be a pastor to be able to say that in a sermon. Um, I don't think I'm there yet. What do you guys, you, yeah, okay. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now again, for a guy that starts almost every section of his letter with beloved family, starting with you adulteresses, right? You know you're in for a treat. Like this, this is serious stuff. He literally says, you adulteresses. If you're in the ESV right now, uh, I think they say, you adulterous people, and that's fine, but it's actually the feminine form, okay? It's, it's you adulteresses. He's, James is talking to everybody in the church, saying, you adulteresses. That's a very specific nod to the Old Testament that he's making. Okay, if you were to read the Old Testament, especially the prophets, you would find that a very common metaphor for how God describes his relationship to Israel, it's a marriage. God's the husband, Israel's the wife, and it's a really, really bad marriage. It's, it's a broken marriage. This is especially true in the book of Hosea, if you've ever read Hosea the prophet, uh, where God literally commands the prophet to marry uh, an adulterous woman as an object lesson for the whole nation to say, this is what my marriage to you is like. This is how bad it is. This is how broken it is. It's an astonishing book, honestly. James is picking up on, on that theme with this church. He's saying, you adulteresses. And he's moved on now from our, just our selfish, my way of the highway attitude, which is bad enough. He's broadening the problem. He's saying, any friendship with the world. And, he doesn't, and by world, he doesn't mean culture and other people who aren't in the faith. He means uh, the posture, the attitude, the life the world offers that's apart from God. It says any friendship with the world is a fight with God. You're dabbling with the world. However innocent you may think it is, will become a knockdown, drag out, living room fight in the marriage you have with God. This, if we want anything more than what God wants, whether that's our own way as James just talked about, or it's how we use our words, which James talked about earlier. 
or it's our favoritism with the wealthy, or uh, our rejection of the poor, as James pointed out earlier, and our friendships, our flirtations with the world become enmity with God. We may call them simple friendship. God calls them adultery. If we want a little flirtation with the world, we get a big fight with God. This is James's point. And here's what's so striking to me about this. If you read all through James, there's no evidence, from James at least, of like outright obvious idolatry or sensuality or, or, or even literal adultery within this congregation. If you've read other New Testament letters, all that stuff is going on. But not here. As far as I can tell, from an outsider looking in, there's no like obvious sin as we would mean that, that term. I think if we walked into worship with this church, we'd be like, yeah, they're reading their Bible and they're praying and they're, they're fasting and looks pretty good. But James says, no, 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 no. These small flirtations with the world, especially with how they treat and mistreat one another, is nothing short of infidelity to God. Our bitter words toward one another, our selfish attitudes toward one another, wanting anything that the world offers or condones apart from God, more than God, that's adultery. Our small indulgences in things we, we know we shouldn't do. Words we shouldn't use. Attitudes we should not tolerate. Conflicts we should not enter. Inconveniences we shouldn't mind. Are a big deal to God and to our family, to our community, together. This is a really sobering thought. But what James means here is that our, our, our little justifications of sin with God Right, those moments in your life where you say, I know I shouldn't have done that, or I know I shouldn't do this, but God, I need to, or I want to. Right, those little moments, those go about as well uh, as uh, when you do them with a spouse. Now, probably not, not everyone in this room is married, but you've probably all been around a marriage where a husband and a wife may have a disagreement or hurt feelings and one spouse has no idea the impact that their statement and their posture and their attitude is having on the other. If you do that enough, that marriage, that relationship is in serious trouble. Okay? God feels that way. If we want anything more than him, just like if you want anyone more than a husband or a, sp- or a wife or a, sp- a spouse, we're destined, we're destined for a fight. And that's really sobering news. It is. But it's also really good news. In fact, it's, it's actually the best news I can give you. And here in chapter 4, James begins to switch his focus from things we shouldn't want that are tearing us apart to what we should want and how to get it. And it all hinges here on verse 5. Just listen to this. He says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, this is a really difficult verse to interpret because James says, you know, he, he sounds like he's quoting something, and if you're reading the ESV, they put it in quotation marks, but then they don't footnote it. They don't tell you what part of the Old Testament it comes from. It's because it's not in the Old Testament. <laughs> uh, I think what James is doing here is he's not quoting the Old Testament. He's summarizing the Old Testament. He's saying, this is the message of the entire Torah to you. James is reminding us that God's love for us is a jealous love. It's an intimate love. It's a marital love. And we can take advantage of that love. We can cheat on him. And things will get difficult for us. But when we stop, when we reflect on that love, 
when we consider that love, it's actually quite stunning. In other words, James is saying, you may not always want God, but he always wants you. Always. He loves you, and he yearns for you, and he pines for you like a husband for a wife, like a lover. I mean, that's weird to say, but it's true. That's the message of the Old Testament, and it's the teaching of Jesus. And the more we believe that, the more we should want God's way more than our own way. This is James's prescription for the problem. So if we're to, to want God and God's way more than anything else in our lives, there's something we have to do. It's actually two things that James gives us here. The first is if we want God, we must humble ourselves. That's just straight out of verse 6. Okay, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a quotation from the book of Proverbs. And James is really uh, leaning on the book of Proverbs for a lot of his letter. But it's a theme everywhere in the Old Testament. All over the place, God is constantly teaching us, reminding us that his kingdom, the way his reality works, is upside down from everything we do. God says, my kingdom is where the last are first, where the weak are strong, where the, the slave is the leader of all, and where the humble is exalted. That's his kingdom. And James doesn't just mean here that the humble are preferred by God. He, he's saying something actually way more important than that. He's saying that only humble people actually get God. We actually don't get, get near to God without humility. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work. That's why verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Because our pride, which I would define in this context as, as our almost instinctual need to be right, to not be confronted, to not be challenged, to get our way, to think better of ourselves than almost anyone else in our lives, our constant need to justify ourselves, to make what we do okay, even when we would never let it be okay if someone else did it to us. All of that, that pride, cannot draw near to God. It, it won't let you. Because drawing near to God requires seeing yourself for what you really are. And that's, that's humbling. If it's not humbling, you're not doing it right. That's James's point. The more we want God above even ourselves or the pleasures of the world, the more we will see our own brokenness and the inadequacy of, of the salvation the world offers. Only the humble can draw near to God because pride always pushes God away. That's what it does. If Jesus needed to humble himself, even to death on a cross, to obey his Father, how much more Jesus' people need to humble themselves to obey him. And the most powerful way to humble ourselves, to see ourselves for who we really are, is to repent. This is where James goes next. Repent. Repent is the Bible's word to turn away from something. Whenever we want to come back to God, we have to turn away from something else. If we want God, we must turn away from something else. This is our reason. This is just the economy of, of how our relationship with God works. There's a reason Jesus' sermons always started with repent. You have to turn away from something to turn to me. And I want to get really practical here as James does. These last few verses here, are all straight out of the Old Testament, and they're, they're all about repentance. This is verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. 
Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, I know this isn't like the end of the sermon, pick me up. You probably were hoping for, okay? But, that this, but James is showing us the way back to God. Laughter, remember with me, laughter in the, in the book of Proverbs is not always a, a fun, happy thing, okay? Laughter is often used to describe the fool, the person we're not supposed to be, who thinks that obeying God right now is not that big of a deal. It's like, yeah, I'll do it later. Or maybe never at all. I'm going to laugh instead because I'm good. My life is great. It's the person who shows no urgency in turning back to God when confronted by him. And this joy here, this joy to gloom, this is not like the joy of the Lord, but the joy in, in, in James's mind here is, is that temporary high that you get when you finally get what you want at God's expense or at somebody else's expense and then quickly dissipates again. You got to go find it again. James is saying all that stuff, turn away from those things, whatever they are, and come back to God. Come back to him. Turn away from the addiction that you brought with you today. Come back to God. Turn away from that selfish need you have to always be right and to get your way all the time and come back to God. Turn away from the self-justification that makes you never say you're sorry, that you never admit you make a mistake. Turn away from that and come back to God. Turn away from the bitterness and the old wounds that keep you from forgiving someone and moving on with your life, that keep you from extending mercy and grace. Turn away from those things. Come back. Come back to God. And James even reminds us that when we practice this repentance, this turning away, however imperfectly we do it, and we won't do it perfectly, but he tells us in verse 6, he always gives more grace. There's always grace available when we come to him. This is an old church thing, guys. It's called a confession and assurance. That's how I want to end today, okay? What I want us to do is create space for the Holy Spirit to show us where we're laughing at God. Where we lack urgency with him, where we rejoice at his expense, where we're taking advantage of his jealous love, or where we're bitter with his people and we need to take action to make things right. We, I want us to create space to turn away right now. Not later, now. From anything and everything, we may want more from God and to come back to him and to want him again and to hear his words of assurance over us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a prayer of confession. And I'm going to pray the leader part. This will all be on the screen so you can, you can follow along. But I want you to pray in the all sections, okay? So we're going to pray this over ourselves and over one another. Lord, we are astonished at the difference between our receivings and our deservings, between the state we are now in and our past gracelessness between the heaven we are bound for and the hell that we merit. Lord, we desperately need your grace. Lord, who has made us worthy of your love but you? 
We are no more ready to receive Jesus than anyone else. We could not have begun to love you unless you first loved us. Lord, we desperately need your grace. We marvel that you call us friend when we have not been friends to you. That you call us children when we constantly turn away. That you call us lovers when we are so often unfaithful to you. Lord, we desperately need your grace. Holy Spirit, move among us that we would turn from selfishness, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would not need to get our way but would wholeheartedly want your way. So have your way here, now, in us, we pray.